Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. It's that time again, Geek Blockheads. It's time for the Geek Block. Get out your Rogue One soft, fluffy blanket and snuggle up under. It is cold here in Texas. I don't know who is out there praying for a white Christmas in Houston, but I am begging you to please stop. It is chilly. It is early in the morning at my house. All the mammals are asleep. Hopefully, uh, I won't have any trying to get in my lap and get in on the interview. I am under a blanket. I have a fire burning on Netflix, and I'm telling you, it's everything I can do to stay warm. It doesn't. It does not need to get under sixty in Houston. It's like a. It's like apocalyptic. So if at any point I start screaming and yell "run, run," that means it's gotten under fifty degrees, and I apologize for that. Okay, my guest this month had to reschedule on very short notice, so I thought I would go ahead and make this a fightright.net edition of the Geek Block. If you are a writer diving into the depths of writing fight scenes, head over to fightright.net for all sorts of goodies to help you out. If you would like me to look over your fight scene or would like someone to uh, some one-on-one help, contact the folks at Quill Pen Editorial and I will happily assist you. Um, by the way, when you do send in a fight scene, I'm not going to just list a bunch of errors and leave you stranded. That's not how a coach works. That's not how I work. What I do is I do not change any of your wording. Pardon me while I take a sip of coffee. I'm telling y'all, it's early at my house. I go through. I don't change any of your wording. Um, with track changes, I tell you what doesn't work, but I'll tell you why it doesn't work, and I'll give you a suggestion on making it work. Um, then at the end of um, the scene, I'll write a summary and I will give you some options on ways that you could possibly change it. The last one I edited, I actually said, you know what, this is fantastic. You can take out this sentence here and this sentence here because you know what, you've done a great job writing. Don't worry about adding in all this extemporaneous fight stuff. So um, please send it in and I also, um, make allowance, not make allowances. I, I'm a specific person. Okay. I fight nerdy. I understand all that. So if you have a cyborg or if you have an alien in your fight scene, I'm going to understand how those things work. You know, obviously a robot is not going to feel the same things as a human. And if you hit a robot, it's not going to react like a human. And, and I, I get that. I'm, I'm, I'm nerdy. I'm, I'm one of your people. Okay. So there is no question too outlandish. If you have questions about alien fighting, which I actually have in the show today, feel free to ask them. Okay. First, as always, I want to thank my ninja coach, Eddie Avalar, without whom I would still just be spitting and slapping at people before I ran away. All right. Question number one comes from Jean Ippolito, whose name is a lot of fun to say. I hope I'm saying it right. Ippolito. She asks, is there any way a highly trained, unarmed combatant could beat a combatant armed with a non-projectile weapon? <laughs> I love that question. AKA, a highly trained, unarmed combatant versus combatant armed with a knife or sword. It's a long shot, but I'm curious. Coffee break, sorry. Yes, Janine. And you know what? It's not a long shot. The very first video on my last fight, right, .net, dot net post shows this this very scenario. Um, anyone, anything uses against you, you can turn around and use against them. 
that is why knowing how to use your hands to defend yourself is so very important. It's the one thing that someone can't take from you. If you only know how to defend yourself with a stick or with a knife or with a gun or with a can of mace, well, what do you do when your opponent takes that from you? I make a joke. Um, I made a joke with my coach last week that, you know, if somebody comes at me with a knife, I'm going to thank them for holding my knife because at some point I'm going to take it from them or I'm going to use it against them. So in the case of a blade or anything swung or put towards you with momentum, um, all you have to do is redirect that momentum and it can actually be angled back toward the assailant. You can stab someone with their own knife. Um, and it is, it is not as difficult as you would think. If the blade is longer, um, I would suggest you dodge the swing, wait until their arm crosses their mid body line and then jam them and take them down. Jam them is to um, basically run up and put your arms around them or run up and get and, and, and push against them with all your body weight and knock them down. Now, in the process of that, could they change hands with their blade? Absolutely, they could. Um, if you jam them, they may not uh, be as quick to change hands because it'll be a shock to them. Um, but yes, they, they can change hands. And if you are educated with blades, you take that into account. Whenever um, we, um, whenever my coach teaches blade defense, he is either going to teach me in such a way that um, my move quickly leads into um, guarding against the other hand having a blade or it moves the blade away from the body such that they cannot change hands. So that is something you prepare for when you're in uh, knife training. Um, your character just needs to know how to do it. That's all there is to it. And their attacker can be well-trained, just like in the video I mentioned. Um, both of those fighters are very well-trained. You don't have to have a master versus um, adult situation. Adult, D-O-L-T, do you understand my accent? Adult not an adult. So don't think that you have to have uh, an attacker that just really doesn't know what they're doing. Um, think about it. I mean, Olympians, they know what they're doing. If you have Olympian judoka walking to a square, they're both Olympians. They're both amazing. Well, only one of those people can win. So you can have two highly educated people going up against one another. Um, let's see if I've answered that question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, by the way, I say absolutely. There are no long shots in fighting, and the only absolute in fighting is that there are no absolutes. So, there is neither a never nor always. Very good question, Janine. Becky Metcalf writes, how would a small woman defeat two men in a sword fight? Ooh, I'm going to have to have some coffee on that one. Hold on. Okay, Becky. Um, for those of you listening that have not met me, I can speak directly to this one. Um, I am a small human. I am a, a grown woman that looks like um, I'm built kind of like a strapping sixth grade boy. I'm not super big. I'm 5'2", and I do not weigh that much. And for years, I was under the false impression that because I am not as big as someone else, I can't possibly defeat them. And that's just not the case. Now, it took me years to learn otherwise. Truly, it took me years to learn otherwise. There are some moves that I, I can't pull off because of my size. But there are some moves that I can do especially well because of my size. If you are small and you are skilled and you know how to use that size to your advantage, then it's going to be your greatest defense. 
um, whenever you have a character, and this is something I have found that's true in fighting, and I think it's interesting for um, interesting for char characters to have. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm sorry. I'm gonna have to have some coffee. Whatever you see as your character's greatest weakness, likely it is also their greatest strength. Okay. So again, if your character is small, yeah, it might look like a weakness, but you know what? It might be their strength. If they are tall and gangly and awkward, it may look like a weakness. It may turn out to be their greatest strength. So always look at both sides of that. Um, I went to a workshop on handling multiple opponents. And here's the key to that. You handle one of those at the time. Now, I know I've heard people complain that in movies they have fight scenes where a bunch of people are attacking one person and they attack one at a time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you have two opponents specifically, once it gets more than two, it, it gets super tricky. Um, but specifically two, here's the key. You attack one at a time. You have your character circle one and keep the second in their peripheral. If that second moves toward your character, she is simply gonna move around the one she's focusing on, okay? Just like hands of a clock, she's gonna circle them like a shark. And anytime that she's gonna be focusing on person A, she's gonna keep her eyes on their, um, their collarbones. That's the best place to keep your eyes. Don't look at their face. Uh, heads are misleading. And when you fight, you learn to move your head a certain way to distract your opponent. You don't ever look at their head. You're going to look at their collarbones or the center of their chest. That's going to allow you to see their hands and feet at the same time. And while you're looking at their chest, you are circling them based on the movement of person B. It is completely doable. Um, because she is small, she's going to need to take into account the reach of her opponents. But you know what? That's always the situation. I don't care how big or small you are. Um, it is also especially crafty as well to be the first one to strike. Focus on one and hit the other. And if your character has two opponent, opponents coming up against her, she is going to have to assume it is a fight for her life. And if it's a fight for your life, then somebody's gonna kill you. And so you need to kill them first. If two opponents approach her, she does not need, if she knows what she's doing, if she knows what she's doing, if she doesn't know what she's doing, Obviously, she's going to hesitate. She's going to, you know, move away. If she knows what she's doing, she's going to hesitate just enough to say, you don't want to do this. And then she's going to be the first one to strike. She is going to look at person B. She's going to talk at person B. And then she's going to turn around and hit person A. Because it's going to be a shock to them both. And there are... Um, um, there are ways to kind of do strikes right back and forth. It, it almost looks like a... Um, what do you call those games um, that have a little ball that goes back and forth, back and forth. It's going to be kind of like pong, fast pong, where you hit one, you hit the other, hit one, hit the other. Um, but this is absolutely doable at, at Realm Makers. I, I will be speaking at Realm Makers this year. Remind me of this and I can show you how to attack two opponents that are standing side by side where you focus on one and you attack the other. You also, if she's carrying a blade, well, she mentioned sword fight. It is very important with two opponents that you don't do a lot of stabbing. When you stab, 
you're going to have to go in through the body and you're going to have to pull your sword out. And it's not a case of slipping it in and out of jelly. Okay. That is not how the body works. The body has an internal vacuum. And so when you stab something, uh, hunters, you know this, and I don't mean with a small knife. If you have a huge, huge cutting, um, hunting knife and you stab into a deer, you got, you know, you got to kind of pull it out. And that's because there's a vacuum inside our bodies. It is much more efficient with two to um, keep your blade moving. And so you're going to want to more slash than stab. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not much of a, I say I'm not much of a stabber, I'm more of a slasher because that's just how I've been taught. I've been, uh, my blade training is based in Filipino stick fighting and um, which was created by Hiron Arnas. And the way that he did it, uh, fighting in World War II, is um, that the Filipino soldiers would uh, would go one behind the other. So you'd have groups of two or three. And the first one would slash and push, and the second would finish, finish off or to completely dispatch. And then he would go to the second, slash, push, the second would dispatch. And they keep their blade moving. If you know how to use a machete, um, you know that you kind of move in an X pattern, okay, um, like a sideways infinity. Well, infinity is a sideways, a sideways eight, um, because you want to keep your momentum going. If you chop straight up and down with anything, it, at some point, you're going to have to stop, and you're going to have to fight gravity to pull the blade back up, and then you're going to have to fight momentum to pull it back down. However, if you keep it going in an X um, infinity pattern, you can always use your momentum to your favor and you can slash. Okay. And when you slash, you know, you're not holding your sword straight ahead of you. Okay. When you hold your sword, it's going to kind of be at a 45 degree angle to your body or sometimes a 90 degree angle to your body, depending on, on how close the person is. Um, go, go stand in front of a mirror and practice this, make a uh, reach out with a pen or whatever would be a mock weapon in your hand or just your finger and make that sideways infinity pattern and make it really big so that the X part of that pattern crosses your chest. You'll see that you are able to uh, strike one, two, three, four, five, six, six main points with that pattern. Okay. So if you come up and you start at your reflection, you're looking, starting at your left side of your body. Okay, you would start that pattern on the left side of the neck. It would come down the body and you'd be able to strike the inside of the right thigh. You'd come back up the right side, inside the brachial artery, and then come back down and around right side of the neck. Bring it down to the left side, up left brachial artery, left side of neck, right thigh, right uh, brachial, right artery. And you can see you can hit six main points there. Yes, and you can slash through the chest at the same time if you want. Um, it's called a, it's called a blue worm when you slash straight down, um, the chest. But, um, if you hit those, those main points are great to look for because also in, uh, if the person is wearing armor, that tends to be where there's some vulnerable points or where there's some joints in the armor. Um, let me make sure I'm answering everything. So again, a small woman would defeat two large opponents the same way any size opponent uh, any size person would, they would concentrate on one at a time. Um, and also it's good to keep that blade moving, focus on person a, keep person B in the peripheral 
keep the blade moving at all times. Don't stop it. All right, good question. Andrea Graham writes, do you have any tips on when our characters should realistically run and possible realistic outcomes of attempting to outrun various typical sci-fi and fantasy bad guy characters? If you're hearing me swallow on this HD mic, I really apologize. It's a necessary evil. Okay, I'm actually gonna combine that question with a question I got from Kessie Carroll um, asking if I had any tips for chase scenes through the woods. Anytime you have any sort of chase where someone is running from someone else, I don't care about the size. I don't care about the speed. The advantage will always, always lie with the person who is in front. They are the ones making the decision on where they're going. They have the best vantage. They can also use what's ahead as a trap for their pursuer. In the case of uh, running in the woods, we have all seen this on the movies where somebody's running through the woods and they hold back a branch and they let it go and it hits the, the person pursuing them. That's completely realistic. And that's the advantage that only the person in the front has. They can also see things coming up such as holes or logs or that sort of thing. Um, they are reacting to the actual impediment in their way. Second person is reacting to them. And so there's a little bit more lag time for that second person. So whoever is out in front, they always have the advantage. I don't care how big or small. Does a wooded area favor a small person? Sure, if I'm having to go up against a much bigger person, I would rather have trees and bushes and, and the ilk as, as a buffer between me and them than rather than being out in a clearing against that person. Um, as far as on tips of when to run, I say whenever it's feasible. Um, Anytime you can avoid a confrontation, avoid it. But remember, running means you have to turn your back on your opponent and you need to consider if it's going to be worth the risk. Okay, running's going to wear you out. Now, if you can run and be worn out and get away, that's fine. But if you don't know if you can get away, then when the person catches you, you're tired and you don't want to be tired. That is why fighters um, are efficient. Um, I ask them, <laughs> Somebody in class, I, I, I do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and one of uh, my favorite partners is one of my one of my teachers. She's a black belt, and I said, I don't want to do this. I mainly just want to do all the lazy moves. I said, what, what do you call all the lazy moves in Jiu-Jitsu? She goes, that's called being a black belt. <laughs> so the better you are, the less energy you expend. So running if you can get away I say absolutely run especially if like you're in a parking lot or something like that definitely run make a lot of noise but if you are not sure if you can get away my goodness just turn around and handle the situation um and you have to you have to remember the weapon is not what's being held in the hand the weapon is in the head the brain is the weapon everything else is the extension so you have to outwit your opponent. It's not just about dealing with the blade or the gun or the stick or the club or the mace or whatever they have in their hand. It's about outwitting them and reacting to what they're doing with the extension of their body, okay? So as that person is running um, or evading in whatever way, they have to think about ways that they can outwit their opponent. And this is tough. And this makes me think back to the two-on-one fighting. Part of the reason why the two-on-one fighting is difficult, obviously. It's two against one, that's difficult. But um, 
when you are in an attack scenario where you're having to defend yourself, if you can read the book, The Gift of Fear, The Gift of Fear addresses this beautifully. Um, your brain, the critical thinking part of your brain tends to shut down a bit and it allows for the more um, primal parts of your brain to take over so that you react more than you think things through. Um, that's one of the reasons why you don't always remember exactly what happened because that part of your brain that holds on to that information to critically think, you know, it, 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 it's just not functioning. And adrenaline takes over and kind of blankets the whole thing. So while your character is running, they're not going to be thinking strategically like they would have, like they, you know, as if they were playing chess. They're going to think in what I call chunky thoughts, big thoughts, um, turn the corner, go through the door, run up the stairs, you know, throw the rock, throw the chair. They're going to be thinking big things like that. Not if, if I turn this corner, then possibly I will be able to do, that's not how the brain works when you're in that sort of um, fight situation. Um, the realistic outcomes. Well, if the person in front uses their line of sight and their route to their advantage, they can, just like I said, turn a corner quick, run through a door. Um, they can duck, jump, grab, throw things. Wow, throwing things at your opponent it, is a very big deal. Um, and you also have to take into account, okay, if they do get caught, they're really, really tired. But if they're a trained fighter, they have trained for that. It is very important when you're doing fight training, actually any type of training, when you get really, really tired, you have to keep going because once you are really, and I hate this, boy, I hate it. I hate when I'm on the mat and I look around and I think I cannot move, not even an inch. And then I look and the opponent that's calling me over is 200 and something pounds. I'm like, can you please, you know, where are the little people in the room? But it's really important because when my strength is gone, that's when I'm going to use my skill. And that's what I should have been using the whole time. And that's what your character needs to do as well. So um, if they are tired, they are really going to rely on skill. And you know what? If they're trained, they should have relied on the skill at, at the very beginning. Um, let's see if I answered everything. Yeah, that's a good question. All right. Uh, S.K. Swanson writes, how feasible is fighting with two swords? Wow, there's been a lot of talk on this, um, on this question. What I'm about to give you is just my personal opinion. Take it or leave it. Uh, how feasible is it? Very. Fighting with two swords is a thing. But it doesn't mean it's feasible for your character or that particular scene. Every single technique, style, move, every martial art was born out of one thing. And that's necessity within a lifestyle. When people ask you uh, what you think the best martial art is, your answer should be each one is best for what it was designed. And that's all there is to it. And that design arose from, again, a specific need within a lifestyle. Lifestyle is super important here, okay? Um, even now, um, your lifestyle can affect your technique and your style that is absolutely your own. If you work in shipping and receiving, and 40 hours a week, you're opening boxes. I bet you are wicked nasty with a box cutter, okay? That's gonna be your style of fighting. That's gonna be your character style of fighting. 
Um, if you are a shepherd and you have a staff, I bet you're pretty lethal with that staff. If you're a shepherd and you have a staff, it's likely you also have a blade in your other, uh, on your person in some other way, right? It's either going to be a machete or it's going to be a small knife. So I bet you're good at working with a staff and a small knife. If you're a farmer, I bet you're really good with a machete. If you are um, a rice harvester, a rice grower, then guess what? You're awesome with nunchucks. That's where nunchucks come from. Weaponry even comes out of specific lifestyle. Um, if you are a person who travels and carries a lot of coins with you, fantasy writers, this is something you need to know. If you have a banker or something and they, they're constantly carrying coins, you know how to defend yourself with a coin. And Realm Makers this year remind me to do this. You can flick a coin at a person's eye. It's not going to kill them, but it stuns them enough that you can reach out and punch them before they can punch you. If your character's a writer, guess what? I bet they know how to stab somebody with a pen. Happens in jail all the time, people. So the lifestyle here is what matters. There is a two-sword style in Filipino uh, blade work. Coffee, sorry. It is known as um, Estilo Macabibi. And it's the perfect example of the need within a lifestyle. Uh, Makabibi, M-A-C-A-B-E-B-E. -E. It's a town in the province of Pampanga. And the people there relied on peddling small island items. And to do that, they traveled to larger towns. Well, they carried with them two bamboo poles. One, uh, they had over their shoulder and they carried a, like a big hobo sack on it where they'd have all the little things that they've made they were gonna sell. The other they kept at their side and it was to keep away dogs, you know, maybe use as a walking stick. And if at any point they were attacked on their way and someone tried to steal the stuff that they were going to sell, they'd slide that hobo pack off and they'd go to town with two sticks. And the style, they kept the sticks really moving fast because it overwhelmed their opponent and it intimidated their opponent and their opponent most likely backed off or they got the crud smacked out of them. The Maccabees were so, and you may see it called Estilo Maccabee, you may hear them called Pampanga fighters. Um, they became known for being deadly with these two sticks, so much so that Spain tried to hire, well, not did try to hire them, they did. They, Spain hired them, you know, the Spanish came and took over the Filipino islands. Um, they hired them as mercenaries against the Chinese because those two sticks easily become two swords. It easily translates. And that is the thing about stick fighting. When um, I help teach self-defense, the coach will start people out holding a big bamboo stick and have them do different strikes. And they're like, why are we doing this? Why are we do this? I want to learn to defend myself. Because holding that stick teaches you a big movement that you can make with your hands without the stick. And that stick also obviously can be used as a blade. Um, so did these guys, did the Maccabee fighters wield two sticks because it was cool? No, it was in their lifestyle. It, it was how they lived. It was their need. How long did it take them to learn how to do it? Well, if it's your lifestyle and your life depends on it, you're going to learn it a whole lot quicker than somebody like me who goes to class once a week. So back to your character wielding two swords. Is that a thing? Absolutely. Um, I just pointed, I'll put um, 
some videos on fightright.net uh, of a steel Makabibi. But the question is, why is your fighting, fighter choosing two swords? It has to be a cultural tradition for them. It has to fit their lifestyle or on a daily basis, or it just doesn't make sense. Um, I think that's why you don't see double sword style all over the world. It, it, it wasn't in their life. Why would they pick up? Why would they choose to do that? You know, why would they choose to pick up two swords and fight? Look at the Vikings. You often see the Vikings pictured with axes and hammers. Well, the Vikings lived in wooded areas. They were used to using an axe. They worshiped a God who used a hammer. These were things that were common to them. And so these were items they used. Did they use two swords? Well, you may have had somebody use two swords, but why would they? It wasn't a part of their lifestyle. And every method of fighting and self-defense comes organically out of a lifestyle. So is it a matter of having to learn to wield one sword good and then you pick up another one? I don't think so. I think it's a matter of, is this something I do on a daily basis? And as the case of the Makabibi fighters, they didn't learn to really wield one stick and then wield another. They learned to wield both of them. It's what their lifestyle required. So again, ask why is your character choosing to wield two swords? And if it's because it looks cool, maybe consider what they do as a job. Maybe consider um, their, culture, their culture and then choose your weaponry based on that. I hope that answers your question. Again, that's just my personal opinion. I know you're going to have people that are going to say, well, I read this, I read this. Oh, okay, well, great. This is just my opinion. You're not going to see a weapon style. That, that's why um, the early settlers in the United States did not defend themselves with nunchucks. Why would they defend themselves with nunchucks? Nunchucks come from harvesting rice. That's not what the early, early settlers in the United States did. That's not what the Native Americans did, okay? So they wouldn't have that type of weaponry. All right, SK went on to ask about a good resource for lingo. Um, I would look up whatever particular style you're using in your fight scene. I would look within that uh, within that style for lingo. lingo. However, um, I wouldn't actually use it. If you're having to look it up, then so is your reader. Now, if two skilled characters are in a dialogue discussing a technique, oh, it, it makes more sense. Technical words would come up. Um, like in uh, The Princess Bride, when um, Wesley as Dread Pirate Roberts, Roberts and Inigo are fighting, and they go back and forth, and it's the same in the book. The book is hilarious. They go back and forth talking about the different um, fencing styles they're using. However, in both the movie and the book, you know what, what, what they're talking about based on the action around them. If I tell you in a scene that a samurai took down his opponent and fixed him in case of Gitami, that means nothing to And then I move on, that means nothing to you. And it will take you out of the action and the awesomeness of the scene and actually the awesomeness of case of Gitami. If you are in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and you are a small person, learn case of Gitami. Um, however, if I say the warrior pinned the opponent's back to the, to the cold ground, crushing his side, rendering his sword hand useless, then you have a better idea of what Kesegatami might be. So I say to you as a, um, as a writer, know what that technical word means and then describe it to the reader. How am I going on time here? I've got about 10 minutes left. I'm running long, imagine that. 
Okay, Ben Wolf asks, are spinning moves effective? Short answer, yeah, they're effective. Um, the bonus of a spinning move is that it gives you momentum that you won't generate just from standing, uh, which not only allows for greater power, but it can provide you with height and it can cover a distance. Um, my spinning back kick is actually higher than um, my high roundhouse kick. A high roundhouse kick, I can catch you, um, depending on how tall you are, obviously, but I can catch average, you know, 5'9 opponent in maybe underside of the chin. But if I get a spinning back kick, I might catch you with my heel in your temple. Um, so that spin, it, it does allow for more height. Now, I've been told that the original purpose of those crazy high spinning kicks that you see in Kung Fu movies, um, the purpose of those was to get a rider off of a horse. I don't know how true that is because I've never seen any like solid historical evidence. But remember, any move, any style is based on a need. So if someone is kicking high, well, there was a need for them to kick high. Um, and those crazy acrobatic kicks that you see that you never really hit a person with, well, there's a point to those too. And the point was to intimidate your opponent. I did Taekwondo. I know some of those ridiculous, crazy kicks. And I'll tell you what, in, in sparring, I never once used them. It wasn't practical. In order to get a good spin and to do those crazy high kicks, you have to have a little bit of time. And all your opponent really has to do is stand back and say, okay, get that spin out of your system. And it, the whole purpose of those spinning kicks, again, was to make the person think, you really want to fight me? Look at what I can do. I can knock your head off your shoulder. shoulders. Here's the problem. Those really high kicks, the higher you kick, the easier it is for somebody to catch your leg. So if you have a person going up against um, a judoka, someone who does judo, and you do a crazy high kick against a judoka, they are going to catch your leg. They're going to sweep you, and they're going to put you in an arm bar. They're going to slam you and put you in an arm bar before you even realize what's happened, before you can say, hey, look at this, boom, you're going to be on your back. I think spinning moves are great follow-ups. If I try to kick you in the side with a roundhouse and you step back and so my kick totally misses, well, my momentum doesn't stop. I've still got that momentum spinning me around and I need to use it. Why waste that great momentum? Which So I'm going to follow up that missed kick with a spinning back fist or a spinning elbow, especially, especially if I'm going up against someone who's smart enough to dodge my kick. If you are smart, and Ben, you know this, um, you know, you do Muay Thai style stuff. If a person misses you with their kick, boy, jump in and jam them. You want to get right in there on them because it's going to stop their momentum to a certain extent. But here's the thing, Ben. If they are spinning around and you jump in on them, you better guard that side of your face. It's what they call um, answering the phone. You put your glove to your ear. The reason is when I'm coming back around, I'm going to have an arm out using that momentum. And I like to keep my arm coming around at kind of a 45 degree angle. That way, if my opponent is farther away than I expected, then I'll catch him with the side of my hand and a hammer fist. If they're closer than I expected, um, then they're going to catch the point of my elbow. So um, are spinning moves effective? Yeah, they're effective. If you've ever been caught with a spinning move, you know it's effective. Um, practical, not so much. 
there's a reason why you don't see a lot of spinning moves in um, in MMA and, and, and Muay Thai and that sort of thing. But they are great follow-ups. And, you know, and starting attack with a spin, that's not terribly smart. If it is part of a natural movement, well, yeah, then it's super sneaky and super smart. If I look like I'm just turning away from my opponent to pick something up off the table, and then I turn around and deliver a spinning sidekick, that's wicked nasty. However, if I'm squaring off with someone and they know I'm about to attack them, I do not want to start with a spin move of any kind. Um, by the way, if you have a small character, um, this is an advantage of being a small person. Your movements are more easily hidden. In jujitsu, when I'm going up against a larger person, I can feel what they're about to do before they do it because it just requires more of their body to move around. Small people, you don't know what they're doing until they're halfway through it. So spinning back kicks, um, things like that are more easily hidden on a small character. So effective, super effective, but I would use them sparingly. Okay, I have to hurry things up. I'm so sorry. Advantages and disadvantages to fighting on horseback. Okay, I grew up with ponies, um, which are not, a, not for the record, they are not the same as horses. A pony is not a young horse, but you do ride them the same. Um, yes, when you're on a horse, you are higher and you have, have a better uh, field of vision. However, you are also more easily seen. Yes, you are faster, but if someone takes out your horse, um, you know, shoots it in the leg, or if that horse happens to step in a hole, guess what? You are going down just to the ground just as fast as you were uh, once going forward. You have to consider, too, if being on horseback suits your personal skill. If you cannot uh, wield a long weapon, if you cannot shoot a bow and arrow, you do not need to be on the back of a horse. That said, if your character is having to ride without a saddle, that makes things infinitely more difficult because horses sweat. Even when it's cold, a horse is going to sweat, um, just like you sweat when it's cold. And the back of that horse gets really, really slippery. And so you have to hold on for dear life with your legs and feet. If you are shooting a bow and arrow, that means you do not have your hands on the bridle or the mane of the horse. And you can steer a horse with a mane. So if you're not holding on to the horse's mane or a bridle, you have to use your legs and feet to communicate with that horse, okay? And you can um, lead by feet. So if you are shooting a bow and arrow and you need your horse to go to the right, you're going to have to press in with your right heel, okay? You also want to be on the back of a horse that you have a relationship with, that you are good at communicating with. So do not have your character jump on somebody else's horse and then ride off and plan to fight um, using that horse if they're shooting a bow and arrow, okay? If they have a blade and that horse is used to being around that sort of thing, you're going to have an easier time, but you've got to have a hand on a bridle so that you and that horse can communicate. I see a horse as a weapon, and any weapon I can use against someone, they can also use against me. So you have to look at what bad things can happen on a horse just as well as a good thing. And don't forget, a horse is a soldier. It has to be fed. It has to be cared for. Okay, I have five minutes. Last question. I'm so sorry if I'm not getting to all of these. This is from Jessie Roberts. She wants to know some realistic fight injuries, especially with knives, and how they would affect a fighter before and after a fight. Okay, realistic injuries hand-to-hand. -hand. You're going to have broken noses, busted lip, dislocated jaws. Um, and you have to remember that if a person gets punched on the right jaw, right jaw they're also going to hurt on the left because that left jaw is going to left side is going to dislocate really good, too. Um, you're going to have boxer's breaks. 
that is breaks in the middle ring and pinky finger bones of the hand. Um, as a puncher, you are going to have sore sides from swinging your arms. You're going to have bruises wherever you make contact with your opponent. You're going to have bloody knuckles. If you hit the person's teeth, their teeth are going to grate against your fingers and they're going to leave them bloody. Um, you might have general all over soreness, no matter what side of the confrontation you're on. You're going to have bruises and pulled muscles. And I'm going to tell you what, the mo most of them, you are not going to have a clue how you even got them. You feel the first couple of punches, um, but then adrenaline takes over. Okay, you feel the impact of it. Like if somebody punches you in the gut, you feel that. Um, but as so much as registering pain, unless it's a liver shot or something like that, um, it, it kind of gets dulled down. I mentioned earlier about running uh, through the woods from an opponent. If you run straight through thorns, um, you're not, it's not going to register. You know, if, if you stub your foot or something like that, if you're in a run for your life, those sort of things are not really going to matter. I saw a fighter look down during a post-fight interview and see that one of his toes was at a 90 degree angle and he went pale and got sick. He did not get pale and sick until he looked down and saw what had happened to his foot. It hadn't registered up until that point. Um, you're also, if a person is a fighter and they've been a lifelong fighter, you are going to see it all over their face. They're going to have misshapen noses. Their um, cheekbones and jawline may, may have some thickened places. They're going to have scars on their, um, on their, the bony portions of their face, like the eyebrow, the chin. They may have cauliflower ears. I have a post on cauliflower ears. So if you are dealing with someone who's been a lifelong fighter, then they're going to look like a lifelong fighter. Dealing with knives specifically, if the defender, first of all, you're not going to get in a knife fight and not get cut. Well, I can't say never. 99.9% .9 of the time, there's no absolutes in fighting. But it's it's hard to come out of a knife fight without some uh, cuts on you. That's just something you have to accept when you enter in a knife fight. And actually, you're taught um, with knife fighting to give like a preemptive cut to kind of ask the person, hey, I want you to know I'm serious. Do you really want this to keep going? And you reach out and cut them like in the top of the arm or a place that's not going to kill them. And when you defend yourself in knife fighting, you turn your um, forearms in toward yourself. Um, I call it hiding the white or the white pale part of my arm. Because when you guard yourself and you guard against strikes, you want to guard with the top of your arm, not the inside of your arm where the vein network runs. Um, uh, let's see. Am I, am I getting everything? Um, I think so. Okay, remember also um, a slash to the side. Um, no, no, I, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Oh, you asked about aliens. Didn't you ask about alien fighting? Someone did. Um, if you were dealing with aliens and you want to know how that alien would defend themselves, look at the, the different parts of their body and compare them to animals that you are familiar with. If your alien has really big claws, look at how a, a large cat or an eagle defends themselves. Look at the body structure of your alien. You need to know where it's vulnerable. A slash to that alien side may not be lethal, okay? Or it may absolutely be immediately lethal. So you need to know the body structure of the alien to know what is going to kill them. You also need to know the lifestyle of that alien if they, um, you know, had a job or whatever on their home planet. Because that is the way they're going to defend themselves just, just like a Makabibi is going to use two sticks. Just like uh, a Viking is going to use a hammer whatever the lifestyle was of your alien on their home planet, that is how they're going to defend themselves. That is going to determine their weaponry. Um, also remember that predators generally have eyes on the front of their head 
and generally prey have eyes on the sides of their head. Prey needs to have a better vantage. Now, hey, the exception to this is sharks. But I tell you that because you need to remember in designing your alien's head, because heads are very important. They're the midline axis of your body. So the balance of your alien is also going to depend on how much they have to turn their head. So know where your alien's eyes are. Oh my goodness, I'm running out of time. I've got 45 seconds. Thank you so much to everybody who sent in a question. Um, please send in any questions you have to go to fightright.net and um, send me messages, send me questions. I might pick you as the fight writer of the month. That is all I have. Have a very Merry Christmas. God bless you. See you back in January.